Hi, everyone. This is Kelsey with The Take Back. I'm sitting here with someone that I always affectionately call Dean Julie, uh, being from the class of 2012. Oh, 12. Uh, <laughs> uh, Julie Lithcott Hames was our uh, dean of students, and no, she I was, was just the dean of freshmen. Just the dean of frosh. But, as I but like you to became. Say, freshmen were a rowdy bunch, so being dean of freshmen was. So it was, a, you know, there were a lot of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So she was the dean of frosh. But I just kind of kept up the relationship all throughout my four years and um, in the years since graduation as well. So um, I'm so excited to be here with Julie, um, DJ, as I call her, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, You've been up to a lot, a whole lot. And before we jump into kind of the meat of what your world is right now, I would really love to know a little bit about you, right? Um, So who are you and what are you about? Uh, Hi, Kelsey. Hey. Thank you for uh, doing me the honor of getting to sit down with you, be part of this podcast. Who am I and what am I, am I about? I am uh, a 49-year-old black woman who uh, has spent some time in the last 10 years um, coming to love myself and um, coming to live the life I imagine uh, I might lead, which is to say a life with work that is of my choosing um, that is not in response to what I fear other people want or expect or not in the direction of what I think other people expect me to be. But um, I would say that at this point in life, I know that I'm here to live out loud and I would hope we all are. Um, but um, it's one thing to believe that conceptually. It's another thing to be the human who actually feels, okay, I can, I can live out loud. I can be the person I think I am unapologetically. And uh, so that's who I am. Yeah. That might not be what you expected me to say, but that's the first thing that came to mind when you asked me that question. Yeah, perfect. So tell us a little bit about your journey, um, you know, some of your background and and uh, how you came to Sanford. Uh, yeah. So uh, I was born to an African-American father and a white British mother in Lagos, Nigeria, amid the smallpox eradication effort. We moved to the States when I was less than two, moved to Manhattan, and then elsewhere in New York and then to Wisconsin and then to DC where my father did four years with president Carter and, uh, and then Reagan won and we came back to Wisconsin and that's where I went to high school. And my parents chose to buy a home in an all white town and which turned out to really frame my, not just my childhood, but much of my life. And I've spent many years trying to undo the harm of being Mm. the other in that community during my adolescence, which of course is a really formative time. Uh, my family is highly educated. My dad, as I've mentioned, was a physician, you know, with the smallpox work. His dad was a physician. My grandfather, George Lithcott, is one of the oldest, one of the first black doctors in America, having gotten his MD in 1913. I knew that as a kid. I was proud of that. I'm, the, I'm through mixed marriages. I'm the youngest of six, and everybody was educated. Mm-hmm. And so when it came time, to your point of how did I get to Stanford, when I came to be 17 or 16 was looking around, I was looking, it wasn't a weather to go to college. It was where, and I visited a lot of places, East, West, Midwest. And, uh, for some reason in my visit at Stanford, I felt I'm going to be able to be okay here. I can be myself here. I can be valued for who I am. I think that was kind of the Northern California embrace of difference and diversity. Whereas back East, I felt, you know, somehow marginalized or tokenized and, uh, my first hours on the Stanford campus as a visitor just made me, there was just an interaction that made me feel, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be all right here. And when the acceptance came, I knew it was where I wanted to go. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your your four years. What are, uh, what are some uh, outstanding moments, but then also moments where, uh, I don't know, you were challenged? Well, outstanding moments included uh, rowing on the women's crew team. Great. I'm still proud of that. And I still like to say, you know, I used to row crew. And my husband will laugh like that was so long because I'm using it to say like, no, I'm strong. Oh, I'm, you know, <laughs> and um, really, really valuable. Um, Rams had musicals, um, gaieties. Uh, I was a senior class president. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to Oxford. I was an RA twice in Branner Hall, which had 10% of the freshman class every year. I love that work. I love working with Canel Jackson, professor of history. We all, many of us who are listening know Canel, know, knew Canel. Canel died in 2005. Um, upsides. Those were all upsides. Made great friends. Met my husband there. Um, Dan and I have been together since 1988, which I believe is 29 years ago. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm grateful to Stanford for giving me the love of my life. Downsides. I had come from this all white community in high school, hoping to find, um, a, a black community, um, at Stanford, found a black community at Stanford, felt incredibly alienated from that community as an undergraduate. I think at the time I felt there was no room for a biracial kid like Mm. me or a kid who was from the Midwest or a kid who spoke the way I did and so on. That is, I felt rejected. What I now know to be true is a lot more subtle, which is that I could barely see myself as a biracial kid and a black person. That is, I was unaccepting of that self, Mm. unloving of that self. So it was hard for me to be in community with anybody else. Um, I'm actually writing about this. I'm writing a new book, a memoir on race called real American. And I talk about going to an orientation event at Ujima and being surrounded by warmth and conversation Mm -hmm. and music and laughter. It was the most warm orientation event of the entire week. And yet I felt in those 90 minutes that something really was different about me and that I was not going to belong with these kids and I was so desperate to belong with these kids because mm. the white kids, I knew I didn't belong with them. I just spent a childhood learning how to be around white people, but I would never have said I, I felt that I was one of them. In fact, I was often just trying to defend, you know, why I wasn't as different as they thought or, um, and yet trying to articulate why I was different, you mm. know, that, that to be black and to have the skin is a different thing than to be white. Anyway, so these complex um, thoughts and concerns in my own being around race became magnified um, and unresolved at Stanford, whereas I had hoped they would be resolved. Um, they just, the complexity deepened. Hmm. Can you walk- I didn't go to my own black grad. Hmm. Okay. That's what I mean. I didn't go to my own black grad because I didn't feel black enough. I didn't go to black grad until my own students, the freshmen, the class of 06, were graduating and I then Jan invited me and I went and sat on that stage and I bawled like a baby because I saw people cross that stage who looked like my parents and who looked like me mm. and greeted with the most thunderous applause from, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred black people. And I knew finally then that I belong to this community despite the fact that I have a, mo- a white mother mm. or despite the fact that I grew up in the Midwest. I felt the embrace of the community finally. And uh, what I'm trying to say is it wasn't, I think, the community that was excluding me. It was that I was so insecure in my own self. I couldn't, um, I couldn't 
forge the sense of community that I that I felt like I was trying to forge. Yeah. So between the time of you actually being a student and being on that stage in black grad, where did you find communities that that fostered a sense of belonging? Were there places and spaces where you felt like you were being you? You know, there's what we think is true. Like you're 26. Yeah. And I'm sure when I was 26, I could have answered this question with examples of where I was finding community. Yeah. But at 49, I look back and think like, uh-huh, nope, nope that <laughs> That's wasn't not that. It. For example, I went to law school. I'm, you know, I'm a writer now. I'm a lawyer turned university administrator turned writer. And I was at Harvard Law School and I hated almost every minute of it. And one of the reasons I hated it was, although I'm gregarious and outgoing and I have ease, you know, making friends always have probably because I moved around a lot. I barely made any friends at Harvard Law School. And I had to ask myself, like, how could I have chosen to be with these people? You know, I, I barely seemed to like any of them. And, you know, anyone listening who's like my friend from HLS, you know, you know, I see you, I love you, but... I just mean like, no, I was miserable. And I now know I probably should have gone to a law school where they were just totally embracing social justice work. Harvard wasn't at the time, but I was this insecure black girl just trying to, trying to make it and trying to win the approval of mainstream society. Mm. And so there I was, uh, that was miserable. Being a corporate lawyer was miserable. Um, when I began working at Stanford in 20, in 1998 as Associate Dean for Student Affairs at the law school, that was joyful work. Hmm. And I began to feel purpose and belonging to my work. My job was to give a damn about humans, help them on their path, get obstacles out of their way, take an interest in them. And uh, I loved it and uh, really felt seen. I felt like being a people person was a skill Hmm. and I was getting paid to be to utilize the skill that I always had had. And my greatest joy was working with students of color and first generation students and kids from poor and working class backgrounds, kids. I mean, they were 20 somethings. Um, And believing in them when an obstacle arose and they didn't quite believe in themselves. And I was that older person farther down the path trying to shine the light to say, you know, you can do this. Here's the way. And I did that work with memory of people who believed in me when I was a student and when I had stumbles and when I faltered, the people who believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. If you don't mind me asking, who are some of those? Well, and, and what, what did they inspire in you? Yeah. One was Canel Jackson. I've already yeah. mentioned him. He was the RF first in Soto, I want to say, 1980, 81, maybe 79. He moved over to Branner around 81, 82 and stayed there until 2005 when he died. Um, Canel was quirky and eccentric and judgmental and demanding. And I just wanted to meet his very exacting high standards. Mm. Um, he told me one day in the lunch line at Branner, I had decided I'm on his staff, but I'm not one of his favorites. (laughs) There were, you know, 10 or 12 of us. And I, I, you know, at times just felt like really not part of the in group. And so I decided, well, I'm going to take his class on African history. I'm going to demonstrate respect for this scholar by taking his class. Even though I was an American studies major, you know, African history is, is very relevant to American history um, for a lot of reasons. And, and even regardless, I thought I need to take this man's class. I need to sit and listen and do the work 
and demonstrate some respect and try to get to know him as an academic and as a scholar. And I did and enjoyed it. One day in the lunch line or the dinner line, I guess, at Branner, Canal was a few people ahead of me in line. And it's the end of a long day. I'm tired. And, you know, Canal always wanted us to be articulate and, you know, erudite and, you know, talk about important things. And sometimes you just wanted to talk about, you know, stupid stuff. Yeah. And it was critical. So I was trying to duck Canal's gaze. Like, just don't look at me, Canal. Like, I'm not interested. I just can't have, not have a conversation with you right now. I'm not ready to perform, like, to be the student you want me to be or the RA you want me to be. And he looked over at me. He was a couple people ahead of me. He looked over at me, then casually remarked to the person between us, I don't think Julie knows how smart she is. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean? Of course I know how smart I am. You know, um, what I thought it was, I thought he was insulting me. Yeah. Instead, he was trying to say, I don't think Julie knows quite how smart. And he was saying, I think you're smart kid. Yeah. And I hope you, do you realize it? And I didn't get what he was saying, Kelsey. He said that to me around about 1988 or 89. And I don't think I realized it until he was dying in 2005. Mm. And then there's a second professor, Jim Steyer, um, who I know you know, Kelsey, because you were in a seminar Jim and I co-taught. It's amazing how things come full circle, you know, to be in this man's class and to, you know, co-teach with him and get to meet students like you. Um, Incredible. So Jim taught a civil rights and civil liberties lecture class to 200 of us, spring quarter of my freshman year. And I'd gotten a 2.0. I'm just going to say it. (laughs) I had a 2.0 fall quarter at Stanford. I had yeah. a B in Western culture, which became IHUM. Yeah. I had a C in Calc 19 and a D in Com 1. You know, the joke communications is supposed to be the easy subject. <laughs> and here I was getting almost flunking, right? A D. So I just was sure that this was the evidence that a black woman from the Midwest did not mm. actually belong. And that I had been a, you know, admissions that they checked the boxes they needed to check by admitting me, but that I did not have what it took. Yeah. And um, my parents finally asked me about my grades in February. You know, they didn't come online then. There was no such thing. And so it came in the mail to me. And I remember my dad's voice, baby, how'd it go first quarter? And I started to cry. I told my parents they were very loving. They said they believed in me. They thought I had what it took and that I should go talk to somebody. And of course I've been hiding. I haven't been talking to anybody Mm. when I, I, those grades should not have been a surprise to me. And they weren't, I just was ashamed to go to the professors after the midterm and say, I seem to be struggling. What do I, you know, I couldn't talk to anybody. Of course. I finally went to the advising office, which again, full circle would come to run as the Dean of freshman and undergraduate advising. Um, And those people there said to me, you have what it takes intellectually. You just need a lot of help with your time management. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then they also said, what classes are you taking? And I told them and they said, well, you know, why are you taking those classes? And I sort of hunched and said, well, everyone seems to be taking these classes. And they said, well, you need to start paying attention to the, you know, what might you want to take? Of course. Go in the direction of your own interests. So Jim Steyer's class was that first attempt. The civil rights and civil liberties class, really complex, reading Supreme Court cases, hearing his war stories, I had never spoken in class to date at Stanford. It's now spring quarter, you know, midway through. He asks a tough question. I, I, I want to answer. It's a complex question. I don't remember what it was, but no one else was raising their hand. 200 people. He's looking around the room for volunteers. He sees something in my face that lets him know my mind is spinning on this question. And he looks at me and he nods and raises his eyebrows like you. And I start to talk and, you know... He's nodding at me vigorously and, you know, 
and I'm getting the feedback, like, keep going, you're on. <laughs> and the other students are watching Steyer and they're like, oh, she's saying something that's worthwhile. And I, in that moment, was uh, reborn. Um, mm. That high school student who was strong, and smart, and knew it was once again me, but now at Stanford. It was the first time I'd spoken up, dared to take the chance of speaking up as a black woman, yes. you know, so afraid of being wrong and black, you know, of then being that stereotype that, you know, I feared existed in other people's minds. Instead, I was speaking and I was teaching my classmates and my professor was telling with his unambiguous body language that he thought um, that what I was saying was incredibly worthwhile. Um, I'll never forget that. And there were others, but between Cannell and Jim Steyer, I was getting some great feedback mm-hmm. um, that um, that I could do it, you know, that I that I had stuff to contribute, and that I was valued. That's a great refre- uh, reflection. Um, thank you. So thinking about your second time at Stanford, when were you able to do that for some students? Um, so... My first work was as Associate Dean for Student Affairs at the law school in 98 to 2000. President Hennessy came on board in the fall of 2000. I joined his senior staff, worked with him for two years, and then became the first dean of freshmen. So there were probably moments in those first four years, but I'm going to, I'm thinking of an example from my third job, which was the dean of freshman job. Um, I was working with a first generation Latino man from Southern California, fall quarter, who was certain that he could not do IM. I mean, that is to say he was excelling in calculus, high level calculus, um, doing pretty well in freshman English, whatever we called it, power, I think. Um, but for some reason, IM was kicking his butt. Just the way, in, you know, how, how he was... The feedback he was getting on his papers was just devastating him. And he was burdened with this obligation to be fantastic, to represent his family, his extended family, his community, all the people who loved and supported him and helped him get to this point. And um, I was working with him. He was so guarded and so just trying to perform for me even, you mm-hmm. know, so very clipped and very you know, um, very unwilling to let the guard down. And I was just trying to signal, I believe in you, you can do this, but you've got to open up. You've got to let me in. You've got to let me understand what's going on. Cause that's the only way I can help. But the long and short of it was this guy went into fall quarter exams with an A in calc, um, but desperately afraid of IHUM and decided he could not take his IHUM final. And he left school without telling anybody where he was going. And we were all, you know, we got word he's missed this final. Does anyone know where he is? You know, we have a nice info share on campus to try to look out for students. And someone doesn't show up for a final and their RA hasn't seen him and they're wow. you start to worry. And um, I texted him, didn't hear back. You know, maybe 18 hours later, I heard back. We were really frightened. He'd gotten on a train through the Pacific Northwest just to get away. Wow. He was fine. But, um, he had some reckoning to do. Um, he got a zero on that calc final, um, which brought his A down to something bad. And, um, uh, 
I spoke with him on the phone, met with him when he came back for, you know, this winter quarter. He um, came to terms with his, with what was happening with his family. Yeah. And I, you know, remember conversations with him strategizing about how he could talk to his family, his parents. He just desperately didn't want to let them, let them down. Anyway, I mean, this is sort of a long-winded way of saying it was my joy and privilege to get to be alongside this human suffering, struggling, and to try to say something of use, something of support, something by way of, hey, I've kind of been there and you're going to be okay. Mm. And um, he's a doctor now. This person graduated from Stanford, got his, can I say shit on this podcast, got his shit together, believed in himself, found some mentors, you know, graduated and is a doctor now. And, you know, a wonderful doctor. And I guess I have countless examples of stories like that. You know, there are countless people who, for whatever reason, when they get signs of a bit of struggle at a place like Stanford, they don't feel they have the right to go knock on the door and say, I need help. They instead feel something's wrong with me and I'm ashamed and I can't tell anybody. And to be a freshman dean was to understand that and try to catch as many of them and hold them and be alongside them and say, no, 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 you've got this. You're going to have to do a lot of work, but you've got this. Kelsey, every year, every quarter, you know, and I would see people in their sophomore year and I would see people in their junior year. Sometimes people would come to me for just some permission to do what they knew they wanted to do. Mm. And I would always say it's not, and they would never say it like I need course, your permission, but they were coming to me with, well, I think I should do this and I should blah, blah, blah. And they were just desperate for somebody to say, wait a minute, you're describing plan A with a flat affect. And then I ask you about these other little things you're interested in and your whole body and face and eyes light up. Now, what's happening? They were you know, desperate for someone to say, I see you. I see you hiding in the margin of your own life. You know, how can I help you find the permission to give yourself to be the person to live the life you imagine? Helping young people dare to articulate and listen to their own dreams. That was my work as Dean of Freshman. Yeah. Yeah. And does that work? I would love to, to lift up um, How to Raise an Adult. Right? Yeah, yeah. Best-selling author, uh, New York Times bestseller, and yeah, everything, right? Yeah, um, everything, I was, I, all of the things, <laughs> all the things, all of the things you have accomplished. No. Um, tell, why do you think students are in in that place, right? In the place of needing that permission or seeking it out? Do you have any ideas? I know you've done a ton of research. Yeah. Obviously, you have anecdotal yeah. research as well. Yeah. So what I've been talking about so far is, you know, about my own experience as a black kid. You know, working with other students. I work with all students, of course. And I said my particular joy was working with students who might be from underserved populations. Um, How to Raise an Adult was speaking to a different type of alienation that really um, overlapped race. It was really more of a class issue, I think. Um, So my book, How to Raise an Adult, is an anti-helicopter parenting manifesto born in my years as dean where I saw too many students who were accomplished in a childhood resume and transcript sense, but who seemed to need a whole lot of involvement from their parents to manage their day-to-day life around choosing classes, choosing summer work, um, coping when things went wrong, how to talk to a professor, stuff college students, you know, the older folks listening, people my age and older, like we did that for ourselves. Exactly. 
So why is it that these young people, millennials, um, too many of them seem stuck, um, not stuck, unfamiliar with their own self, with their own ability to handle something? Why do they need to be in touch with a parent constantly to know what to do and how to feel? Um, and uh, like I said, this was a class issue. These were kids who had parents who had time on their hands, time to invest in always being there in every conceivable way for their kid and money to invest in cultivating their every moment, you know, and encircling, and, and caging them and all of this enrichment and so on. So my wrote how to raise an adult because too many students more and more every year at Stanford from 2002 to 2012, when I held this role, more and more of them every year were what I called existentially impotent. It was like, you might be really impressive in a resume and transcript sense. You might have been the this and that of your high school and you might be this and that now. But are you familiar with your own self or are you just incredibly good at following directions? You know, someone has told you to be a brain surgeon yeah. or told you to be an investment banker or told you to be a tennis star and you're just following those directions instead of interrogating the self. Who am I? What am I good at? What do I love? How can I craft a life accordingly? I was always in favor of the latter. Yeah, absolutely. So I would love to ask you about transitions. Uh, you mentioned that you have just a breadth of experience and knowledge. You said you were a corporate lawyer, then you were in academia. Well, you were administration, you know, yeah. in the administration at Stanford, yeah. and then now you're a writer. Yeah. How do you give yourself the permission and yeah. the space to be brave to, you know, navigate those transitions between each yeah. one of those careers? Sometimes people say to me, "How do you hold on to the sacred thing and try out the new thing?" Hmm. And I tell them, you can't, you know, I loved my work at Stanford as Dean of Freshman. Nothing brought me more joy than to get to work with other people's sons and daughters who were on the verge of becoming their adult self. And yet I knew that there were other things I wanted to do with this life. And, um, you can't hold on to the sacred thing and try out the new thing. Now, corporate law was never the sacred thing. So let's go to that inflection point. Okay. I chose corporate law because I was insecure, you know, 25, 26 years old, went to law school to help humans had a picture of Thurgood Marshall on my wall, ended up in law school just doing public interest work with Charles Ogletree, great criminal justice, defense professor, um, family law, neglected and abused kids. Those were my mentors, Martha Minow, Charles Ogletree. But when the time came to get a job, I just felt if I take a public interest job, they'll, they, the big nameless, faceless, amorphous, white people who run this life, will think that I couldn't get a corporate job. Okay. And I was in the middle of my class at Harvard Law School, grades-wise, and I was embarrassed by that. Like, I wasn't one of the best in any way. And and I think I thought, i got to go get a corporate job so that nobody thinks I couldn't, you know? I, of course, what I didn't realize then is that the best public interest jobs have even higher standards than mm. the corporate okay. firms. But anyway, I went toward corporate law to prove that I could. And uh, I was, it was 94, it was... Silicon Valley intellectual property litigation became my specialty was protecting corporations instead of people. As I like to joke, corporations weren't people then (laughs) they are now. Right. So I was miserable. I was well-paid. I had the fancy briefcase. I had the lovely, you know, the, the, the Talbot's suit and the coach briefcase and the salary. And I was miserable and I felt the misery like a stone in my stomach every Sunday, right about two in the afternoon, assuming I wasn't at work. It was the sort of desperate realization that I had to go back to that place tomorrow. 
And I thought, how the hell did I get here? I'm highly educated. My parents love me. You know, I've reached this place. Other people call success and yet I feel miserable. And in that misery, I had to unpack what the hell was happening. You know, like, how did I get here? I felt that I was taking an aerial view of my life. Like I was able to kind of be at 35,000 feet above my life path and see it all. And I could see instead of a nice meander here and there, I was on the periphery of my own life. Wow. And that was a pretty stark realization. And I sat down that night and made a list of, since this ain't it, this, this isn't what I want to be doing. What do I want to be doing? Well, what am I good at? What do I know I'm good at? And I put down things like working with people, helping people solve their problems, all the stuff I'd marginalized as just sort of fluffy, soft people, girl skills. I decided technology as skills. And then what do I love when on the other side of the page it was a page with a big line down it. What am I good at on the left? What do I love on the right? And what I loved, I listed things like cheeseburgers. <laughs> as you know, I like cheeseburgers. <laughs> and red wine and good fiction and friends and Stanford. And I thought if I could get a job working with people and cheeseburgers or yeah. people at Stanford... Right. I was looking for an intersection. Flipping burgers was not my plan at that point. Probably not. So um, that's how. Um, I was so miserable. I had to claw my way out of it. Mm. And I had to, uh, you know, so, so then the hard part, once I realized I want to work with people at Stanford, it was who do I dare tell? How do I put this out to the universe and, and, and ask for the universe to help me? How do I start to, you know, mobilize my network? Um, how do I tell my family? You know, how do I tell my father-in-law, who's a corporate lawyer, who's proud of the fact that I'm a corporate lawyer, how do I tell him I don't want to do this? And when I finally did, he was skeptical. And I remember he told a friend of his, another corporate lawyer, who was very skeptical and ridiculed me. and said, you don't want to work at a college. You don't want to be a university administrator. They're mindless bureaucrats, mm. this corporate lawyer told me. You know, and I didn't have the wherewithal then to be anything other than, I mean, I just shrank. I just tried not to cry. Um, but I persevered at trying to find the work because I was miserable and I'd learned no amount of money they pay you is going to make up for feeling miserable, yeah. you know, every day at work. That was inflection point. Number one, from the depths of despair, you know, I planted a little tiny seed and tried to water it and it grew. And you found, yeah, it grew. Oh, I loved working for Stanford. I love Stanford. People know that. You know, what a blessing. Stanford, I like to say Stanford cradled me twice. Mm -hmm. Once when I was an undergraduate and once again, as I sought to get reoriented career-wise, you know, and try this student affairs administrator thing on for size. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So I'm from the class of 2012. I've mentioned that many a time. Yes, you uh, So as I was gearing great up for class. the, the one last, of the, one, no, well, the last great dare class. Dare you say that? <laughs> <laughs> as you know, eighty nine is the last truly great. I class. hear that. I hear that. You so heard that a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> so as a graduate of uh, twenty twelve, um, Julie's uh, last year was actually twenty twelve as well. Yeah. So I always uh, joked with her and said that we were both graduating together. Yeah. Um, walk me through that graduation for you. Oh. Um, your personal graduation from Stanford administrator. Yeah. In, in in all honesty, a, a face, right? And a trusted source of of, of comfort and, and inspiration for a lot of folks um, into your next phase in life. Yeah. I, uh, God, was Cory Booker the graduation speaker? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
I think he was your graduation he was speaker. Great. He was great. Yeah. And Corey was my husband's class, mm-hmm. uh, class of 91. And, you know, I knew him not well, but knew him when we were undergrads. And um, there he was. And we were all dressed up. We're in our regalia and it's commencement. And I'm just realizing it's hitting me like, oh, gosh, I'm doing this for the last time. And I always savored, you know, getting to be freshman dean. And I knew a lot of students. And as we paraded into the stadium, you know, the faculty and administrators last, I would always uh, get these waves of, you know, Dean Julie, you know, like love from the seniors as I walked through. And when it happened for the final time, Mm -hmm. I was all I could do not to just lose it. Um, And I worried, do I need this? Hmm. Do I need all of this positive affirmation to be myself? Have I grown up here at Stanford? Have I healed the feelings of inadequacy from corporate law and all of that? You know, am I now reliant upon all of this freely given affection, Hmm. you know, to be myself? I worried like shit. You know, I have the great luck and joy to be, quote unquote, Dean Julie on this campus where people smile at me multiple times a day. I just walk through campus and people are nice to me and I'm nice <laughs> back, you know, and it was wonderful. But I thought, am I, what's going to happen? Yeah, without it. Am I, do I, do I exist if I'm not Dean Julie? Like, is that my, is that persona actually all there is to me? Your new definition. Yeah. And without it, do I exist? So I was mulling this over as I sat on the stage, maybe, and after. I mean, I walked back through you guys and just, and people knew I was leaving. And so there was all of this extra positivity coming my way and I couldn't, I could barely handle it. I just was trying not to cry. And um, so, to, to my, so turns out, no, I didn't need that to exist. I was always grateful for it and really grateful to see that while it had been a beautiful byproduct, a, a dividend of my time, it wasn't necessary to my wellness and my ability to stand and walk. Um, I went to grad school. I went and did an MFA in writing. I became a student again, which I highly recommend to anybody listening who's over the age of 35. Go back to school and savor it like you never could when you were 18 or mm. 20 or 22. I became a student in a writing program. I was delighted to, to discover there were smart, capable people beyond Stanford. Mm-hmm. I went to a school most people haven't heard of, California College of the Arts in San Francisco. You know, no brand compared to Stanford. And, you know, I think I was delighted to discover smart, capable, hardworking people there. I mean, by which I mean, I didn't realize how biased I was and how elitist in some ways I was until I felt this relief at CCA, like, oh, good, they're smart. Like, well, what were you thinking? You know? Um, so I think what I learned was um, the person I now am is somebody who's not looking for external validation. I'm not that law student trying to get approval in the eyes of others by taking a corporate job. Um, I'm someone for whom writing has become very important. Um, I'd been writing poetry, I'd been writing song lyrics, I'd been writing, you know, and I was learning about myself as I wrote, learning about myself as a woman, as a black woman. Um, and I, I wanted to make more of my writing. I wanted to see if I could make more of my writing. 
and that was becoming the most important thing. And, um, so somewhere along the way I found myself when writing helped me find myself. That is a self that I can look at and recognize as mine and is actually me, not some performance of me, not a me that's trying to be what others want or what others don't want, you know, anything like that. Um, so being a student and, and being a writing student was to immerse myself in the study of um, my own existence, my own understanding and interpretation of the world. And it was delicious and it was contagious. I just wanted more and more of it, which is why they had to kick me out. I didn't want to graduate with, you know, on time. I just want to stay forever. Perfect. So give us, um, chronologically, you graduated from, from Stanford, right? 2012. Um, <laughs> you enter the world, you do your MFA. Yeah. When did, um, uh, uh, how, how to raise an adult, adult happen? And then also, where are you right now? You're yes, traveling all over the place, but you're also working on a new book too. Yeah. Uh, so graduated with you in 2012, June, and enrolled at California College of the Arts in the fall of 2012. Got my book deal in the fall of 2013. Should have graduated from the MFA program in the spring of 2014, but now I'm writing a book hmm. that I decided I did not want to have as my thesis for my MFA. So I had to slow down the MFA, just go really part-time while I finish this parenting book. Um, so wrote the book in its, you know, really hardcore writing in the calendar year 2014. And it came out and worked on it through February of 2015. It came out June 2015. Um, and it got me incredibly busy book tour all over the country. I've been invited to other countries. You know, I'm now speaking for a living and writing for a living. And, um, the paperback came out in August, 2016. And, you know, both have hit the New York times list, which is amazing. In the middle of all this, right around uh, December 2015, so I'm, my book tour is hot and heavy. It's going well. I'm incredibly busy. I'm home for five days here in, you know, in, in an entire month, barely seeing my husband and my kids. My school taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, you got to graduate. Hmm. And I say, oh, goodness. And they forced me to, they said, you know, you, you need to graduate. You have to do your next, you have to do a thesis that's not this parenting book because that's now behind you. What are you going to write about? And I said, do I have to do a thesis? Because can I just go back and say that How to Raise an Adult was my thesis? Because yeah. I wrote this whole damn book here. <laughs> and they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, um, we would be remiss as your friends. We'd be remiss as your faculty, but more important as your friends, not to force you to have your second book ready. And I didn't see it as a gift that that was. At the time, I was just mad. Um, but they were right. So they forced me to write book two or to, you know, get my next manuscript teed up. And that turned out to be a book on race called Real American, which is a term I've seized. I'm trying to seize it, wrestle it away from the rhetoric of the right that we can all hear in our heads, right? Real Americans, yeah. real Americans, you know, that, that term that refers only to certain, a certain band of white Americans. Um, that term has been seized by the right for years and, you know, never more so than now. And that's what my book's called. And it's sort of like Sojourner Truth, Ain't I a Woman? My book is Real American. Ain't I a Real American? Aren't we all? And um, so that book is a memoir on race uh, that comes out in August of 2017. And then my publisher, because they're publishers, mm. they made money off how to raise an adult. They're probably not going to make money off of a memoir on race. 
they want a sequel to How to Raise an Adult called How to Be an Adult. It's going to be out in June 2018. And I like to call it the, you know, it's called How to Be an Adult, but I just call it hashtag adulting. Yeah. You know, it's the first book was aimed at parents. This third book, How to Be an Adult, will be aimed at millennials. Got it. Who are failing to launch, who Mm. need guidance, trying to figure out how to be their adult self. You know, the people for whom I had tremendous compassion as Dean will now be my direct audience again. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you already have some ideas as to how you're structuring that? You know what? It's funny. Um, this book was the publisher's idea. Got it. And I would have said, yeah, that book should be written. I'm not sure. I'm the I'm one to the write one. it. Yeah. Because I'm headed off into these more creative realms yeah. to write about race. The race book is a prose poetry style. There are places where, um, you know, I studied poetry in my MFA as well as creative nonfiction. Because to me, poetry is like weightlifting or protein powder. It's mm. like the stuff you you do or ingest to strengthen yourself. Poetry strengthens my prose. So, And why is that for you? Um, poetry demands the exact selection of words and placement on the page. You can be a little lazier when you write a paragraph or a sentence. But when you're writing a poem, there is no, you're not allowed to have an, an extraneous word. And so it just is a way to discipline your thinking. And I'm pleased when I see that discipline infuse my prose. You know, if I've written a book that's a hundred thousand words or, you know, 60,000 words or however many, you know, 250 pages, 300 pages printed, um, you know, I'm delighted with this book to see where the poetry really um, Mm. lives on the page. So I wanted, I've been wanting my work to go off in this creative direction, you know, I've got this concept of the juice and dirt of humans. We can talk about that. Um, Real American is a prose poetry effort on race. But my publisher, you know, a very highly regarded New York publisher, they want the sequel to How to Raise an Adult. And this was their idea. And so when you ask me, do I know what shape it's going to take? I don't because, you know, I won't know until I sit down with it. And I'm still sitting with Real American for the next couple of weeks. The minute Real American's done, they'll believe me they're going to be you know, lighten a fire under me to get started on the third book, How yeah. to Be an Adult. So let's jump back into Real American. Yeah. You you touched on it. You glazed on it. We're obviously um, in late January of 2017. So um, a lot is changing here in the United States. Yeah. Um, I would love some of your reflections in terms of uh, your own work, right? And how the world around us, right? The past five years, for example, how that is kind of influencing your work and, and your perspective on all of this. So um, when I wrote this thesis that became Real American, I had no idea we'd be facing the kind of election results from 2016 that we are now facing. And of course, I think none of us predicted it. Um, Some people predicted it, but I didn't. Um, So now I've, I've got a topic, I've got a theme that I think is highly relevant to the American discourse. And you know, as I do my work, which is not just to write, but to read, you know, I'm surrounding myself with people like James Baldwin and Langston Hughes and Lucille Clifton and Claudia, Claudia Rankine and, um, writers and thinkers, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, Mm. you know, um, who have already done a magnificent job at illuminating some aspect of the black experience. And I'm here now to try to do that. Um, which is terrifying because I don't want to get it wrong, you know? And when I say it wrong, I just mean, I mean, no one can tell me my life story is wrong. They can laugh at it, though. You know, they can say this was not worth telling. And I'm trying to write a book that audiences, readers will feel was, in fact, worth telling. You know, too many of us 
nowadays are made to feel like America's other, quote mm. unquote, that we don't belong, that we do not have the right to take advantage of what America offers. And when politicians say that, I take offense on behalf of everyone who's ever felt like the other immigrant, Muslim, queer, black, you know, Jew, whomever, you know, um, I, I hope that this memoir will help anyone who's ever felt like the other in America feel seen. Tell us a little bit about kind of the arc that you currently have developed with, with the, book? Uh, the book. And and when does the book? The book comes out August. Right now, the pub date is Aug 1, yeah. August 1, 2017. It might slip a little. It's, it's funny. It's highly dependent on when my eldest child goes to college Got and it. where. And I don't know now, nor does, you know, he doesn't, doesn't know where he's going. So his orientation is going to dictate my pub date, which is wonderful. So you have a 17-year-old boy. Son, I do. I'm I'm raising a black son in America. And in some ways having this incredible child in my life has sharpened my consciousness as a black woman. Mm-hmm. So the arc of the book is, um, let's see, I don't have it memorized, but let me see if no I can problem. try to describe it for you. So it sort of sets the stage. Um, you know, the opening page is where are you from here? No, where are you from, from, you know, that question, many of us who don't match whose features don't match someone else's definition of this, that we get that question from, you know, Americans, who are trying to nail us down and figure us out. Um, so it sort of st- sets the stage of this kind of alienation I felt as a black person, as a biracial person. Um, I claim my slave ancestry right up front. You know, they say, go back to where you came from. If you don't like it, go back to where you yeah. came from. And I say, there's no back to where I came from. I come from Here. Sylvie. Yeah. You know, <laughs> she was raped on a plantation owned by a man whose last name was Eden, you know, and I claim her and she's very present through the memoir. So the mem- the arc of the memoir is, an American childhood, which is, you know, wonderful and patriotic and ribbons, yellow ribbons for the hostages in Iran and, you know, Washington, D.C. and, you know, the bicentennial. I mean, this these were the times of my childhood. It's an American childhood. The next section is a black American childhood. Mm-hmm. As I begin to learn as a little one, something's wrong with me and daddy. You know, I can tell by the way strangers are treating, some strangers are treating us. You know, so the black American childhood. And then, um, um what I call, I think, you know, just trying to belong. I'm trying to locate self within blackness because I'm biracial, but also within America because I'm black. I'm trying to find myself and discover and I hope to discover that I belong and discover I don't belong. And then there's all the performing that I do to try to be what America seems to want and the self-loathing I inhabit because when you're trying to be something other people want, you're not loving yourself and discovering the self-loathing and then emerging from that and declaring that I do belong here within blackness here within America as well. And then, um, Trayvon Martin becomes my Pearl Harbor, my point of demarcation before I can say before and after. And if there was any remaining ambiguity in my mind, heart, and soul about my right to be a black woman, despite having light skin and biracial hair and, you know, this white voice, um, when Trayvon was murdered, I became an angry black mother who just wants the world to be safe for our kids, our boys and our girls and all of us. And that's how the book ends with this fiery rhetoric. Um, and, um, and I think the arc of the book shows you whatever this fiery rhetoric, the narrator has at the end, this narrator has grown because this narrator could not have spoken that way in the first half of her life, but boy, can she by the end. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Yeah.
Who do you prove yourself to? Now? Now. To me. Yeah. I now trust myself to be able to see myself and discern right from wrong and good from bad and what I want and what I don't want. I'm not looking for other people to validate my existence or, um, you know, so I, that's not to say that I'm a narcissist or I don't care about other people, but, um, you know, our first judge should be, I mean, I'm not a religious person. So some people listening are going to say, God, God is the first judge, but you know, um, I care, I care about other humans. I, I deeply, but I'm not looking to other humans to tell me how to think or what to do. Mm. Um, uh, I like to be in community with other people who are like-minded, who share my values and my ideals. And fundamentally, I'm just interested in all of us having a chance to be ourselves. you know, to just make our way, find work, find love, pay the bills. You know, I, I, I hope for that for all of us mm -hmm. unfettered, you know, to laugh, to eat ice cream or drink a beer, to, uh, find love and work, as I've said, and to die in peace, mm -hmm. not running away from some police officer who's shooting us in the back like a dog. Mm -hmm. What kind of conversations do you have in the household with Avery and Sawyer? Oh, yeah, yeah. Avery and Sawyer, uh, my kids. And, you know, they know that their parents, my husband, as well as I, you know, I'm, I'm liberal, am, are, I've lost my verb. I, we're, we're liberal Democrats. We are very rooted in ideals around um, valuing all humans and appreciating the differences and valuing everybody's experience. And so they grow up with parents who talk about these things. When things happen in the news, we talk about them in our home. We try to talk about them in a way that informs them and helps build a consciousness as opposed to in a way that's dogmatic and will make them just, you know, go in the other direction because they're trying to be different from us. Um, you know, we try to lead by example. Not always good at that, but... Sometimes we're good at it. And, uh, you know, ultimately I'm trying to raise kids who know how to use their brains and know how to use their hearts and, uh, whatever they want to make of their lives, they will. Yeah. One thing that really sticks with me is, uh, the passion and the fire that you speak with, um, across the entire arc of this conversation so far, there have been multiple touch points, multiple inflection points in the conversations that, that, that that I can't really let go, right? One being this idea of uh, not knowing, kind of being worried about waking up and having to go do X, Y, Z for your day, right? Mm -hmm. And then also this idea that you have something to fight for, right? There's something that you care deeply about and you're going to throw everything that you have at it. So two-part question, what keeps you up at night? And then what wakes you up in the morning? I guess the first answer is so not unique. I don't know if the second answer will be unique, but the first is not unique. I am so overwhelmed right now by paralysis, feeling that there's so much wrong in our country right now. I have no idea what to do. Um, I'm so scared for all of us at a level of society and era. We are conscious that we are in an era folks will one day be reading about in history books. And I am conscious of living through an era and trying to figure out what the right 
what, how I can be useful in advancing the cause and, um, and not be overwhelmed by paralysis. So I am, I am up at night interrogating myself around what did you do today that was worthwhile in terms of, um, helping people who are struggling, um, improving the dialogue around difference and otherness. This whole era of alternate facts is bewildering. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to have a conversation when some people are believing, quote unquote, in a set of quote unquote facts that are just lies. You know, how do you even have a conversation anymore when some people listen to news that's absolute lies and they think it's truth? You know, we just sort of seem to be in this dystopian novel, but it's our life. And that's, I think that's when I go to bed at night, I'm often thinking about, you know, how to, how to deal with that and, and still be a human and a mother and a wife and have friends. And, you know, it's sort of, there's the sort of public life we all have to lead now, which is, you know, resist and fight and, you know, and, and advocate for change. And then there's the, but can we still have dinner with our friends? Mm -hmm. You know, can we still enjoy a glass of wine? can I still go for a walk or does everything now have to be, you know, hashtag resist, yeah. you know, and sort of trying to find the right balance there. I think that's where presently that's something that's keeping me up at night. Yeah. I honestly believe um, that we have to still have those glasses of wine Yeah, that we have to, you know, create the communities and the spaces where we can laugh and be our full selves in order to recharge and regenerate for the next day of resistance or whatever it is yeah. that we undertake. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know if you noticed because you're at my house right now. Yeah. There's a fire pit out back with a set of chairs that encircle it. And um, I like to just be out there with people. I like to light a fire and have, you know, some wine or some hot chocolate or whatever it is you want and just be with humans. And I like to say when people gather here, who are you? And this was before the election. Yes, of course. (laughs) Who are you becoming? You know, I believe that all of us should be in a continual act of becoming that if we think we're done or we've arrived or we've made tenure, we might as well be dead. You know, we Mm, are living human beings. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like to make tenure in your life. I'm not knocking anyone who's made tenure. It's a big accomplishment. But what I mean is you're not here to coast. Yeah. You know, well, I'm not here to coast. Let me put it that way. I'm not here to coast. I came to live out loud and I plan to do that from now until I draw my last breath. And so I'm interested in inspiring other humans to think about that. You know, when I say, who are you becoming? I don't mean, what's the next title you have in mind for yourself. I'm not saying, where do you want your resume to pivot next? I'm saying like, who, what is your soul working on? What do you desire to know more about? How are you working to improve your, you know, your way of being in the world so you can be kinder and humbler and yet, and not yet kinder and humbler and therefore more effective at connecting with other humans. Mm -hmm. You know, the irony for my life is, as I got more and more important with my titles and stuff, you know, finally, at some point I became much more humble. You know, when I was striving and trying to prove myself and trying to be what the white people wanted and trying to be black enough for the black people and, you know, and, and all of that trying to, trying to, trying to, you know, I was, I was harder to be around. I was always, you know, I was loud and emotional and, you know, needy and, and strident and, you know, lawyerly and all of that. But you know, as I began to love myself in my skin and accept my own limitations as well as my qualifications, 
as I became, I be, I got calmer and better mm. able to just be around myself, therefore around other people, be a presence in the life of other people where I could wow. help other people emerge. Boy, that was a real tangent. And somehow I got there from talking about the fire pit in my backyard. That's great. I love sitting there around that fire and listening to other humans talk about what they're really trying to do with their life, how they're really trying to show up differently, more intentionally, so as, you know, to be the best version of themselves, so as to help other humans become themselves. Absolutely. So final word. Yeah. Um, what do you want folks to, to walk away with? Right. What? If you, if this was your final, your final, your final breath. Buy the book. <laughs> Which, all right, buy the book. Okay. First, first and of foremost, all, why, why, why? Right. For all three of them. Right? All three books? The first one. No. Buy the no. book and why. Buy the book and why. Buy the book and why. Okay. Well, the book I meant was Real America. Uh, yeah, of course. All right. So let's start with that one. Okay. <laughs> buy the book. Why? Because I need you to. Why? Because I really hope this book will make it and I need you to help me make it. Yeah. And books need help. Books need lofting up into the air, into the energy, into the consciousness. I have tried to write a book that will meaningfully contribute to the conversation on race we quote unquote all know we need to have. I'm hoping this book will be useful and I would love for people to buy it and comment and share it if you like it and so on. I think, I think this book is, um, if I've done it well, it's speaking to the experience many of us have had. Um, and I'm hoping that there are bits of it that you'll relate to and that you'll, um, you'll decide it's worth recommending to friends. How to raise an adult, why to buy it. Um, that book's about the harm of overparenting. We are so over-involved in our kids' lives, overprotective, making them do what we want them to do and holding their hands too long like they're concierge. And that's not healthy for kids. It makes them feel inadequate and incompetent. None of us want that. And, you know, it's stressful for us as parents as well. Um, so buy it if, you, if you're a parent and you see yourself kind of slightly guilty of any of this. And the third book, Hashtag Adulting. Hashtag. That's for the millennials. I see you millennials. I see you, you know, all of you trying to make your way. And I hope, I don't even know what that book's going to say, but I hope when you open it, you'll smile and feel seen. I hope you will feel not criticized or critiqued, but loved and valued and believed in. And if I've done my job, you will. Perfect. Thank you for your time. Everybody be meaningful, be loved and don't prove, don't prove anything to anyone but yourself thank you absolutely hey julie sorry excuse me julie lithcott hames from the last great class of 89 and i'm kelsey wharton from the greatest class Mm -hmm, 012 thanks guys all right thanks guys thanks for having me